BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Friday, October 4th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org. You can follow us on Twitter, at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook, at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. So, Indre, back in August, I saw a really inspiring talk. You know how there's a lot of bad talks? This was the opposite. It was amazing. I was up in Maine at the Mount Desert Island Biological Laboratory, and the person who gave the great talk was Sylvia Earle. She's not just a scientist, but she's an explorer of the world's oceans, and she also has these amazing sound bites uh, in, in her talks. One of them was, you know, I think that no left behind policy has merit, but I think it should be no child left dry. They should all be made to swim. So she she got people laughing, but then she, by the end, she had them close to crying. You know, she's sort of this freight train once she gets going and she kind of bowls you over with the power of her message about why we have to save the planet. So when we were going to launch this show, I knew I had to have her. We finally made this happen uh, several weeks back. And so I had what I think is a pretty fascinating and inspiring conversation with her. And here's a little bit of a preview of the conversation. People such as I have been around more than a few decades are witnesses to change. I didn't read much of what I feel that I now know in books. I've experienced the change personally. I've seen the skies once darkened with birds, now empty because birds are gone. I've been to coral reefs where there was coral. (laughs) Coral, gone. The fish, once abundant, now diminished markedly. And it's happened in my lifetime, where I am witness. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing the rest of the interview. Um, and I'm really delighted that, you know, within three weeks of launching our podcast, we have not one, but two pioneering women, of course, uh, reaching very different frontiers, Marsha Ivins in space and now Sylvia Earle in the oceans. Yes, we've had two amazing uh, female explorers on the show, and I think that is an achievement. So that's what's coming. Stay tuned. We want to talk about some things that are going on in our area this week. And I guess we'll start out again with, you know, I like these psych studies. Okay. So there's this new one. Stephen Lewandowski has been doing research on conspiracy theorists. And boy, do the conspiracy theorists not like his research on them. Uh, But he keeps correlating being a conspiracy theorist, and he has a lot of questions like, you know, do you believe NASA faked the moon landings? Do you believe that, um, you know, JFK, there was a conspiracy to to kill JFK? Things like that. All the big ones is that, you know, do you believe in the New World Order trying to take over the planet? Uh, and he correlates people's responses on that to science denial. And again and again, he gets meaningful correlations with different kinds of science denial. So he's gotten it with global warming denial. He's gotten it with resistance to genetically modified foods. He's gotten it with thinking that HIV doesn't cause AIDS. And now he got a big whopper of a correlation with vaccine denial. And it's the biggest one yet. It's a really strong relationship. 
Uh, as so sorry let me jump yeah. in chris mm-hmm. for a minute because you know part of me feels that what's really common about all of these different things and science and and uh, what conspiracy theorists rail against really is you know authority some of them someone telling them what to do or what to think um and they you know so is it is it just science in general is it the scientific method they object to or is it just authority and they see the scientists in a white coat as simply a symbol of authority well, I think Lewandowski would say that in general, conspiracy theorists are suspicious and distrustful and also, you know, bordering on, you know, paranoid. Um, and it, it, he, he argues, so I think this is similar to what you're saying. He argues that there is something about the conspiracy theory way of thinking or the cognitive style that goes with being conspiracy theorist that's antithetical to science, which is that A, conspiracy theorists seize on little tiny bits of evidence and make that like the big thing, the big conspiracy, rather than looking at all the evidence, which is what science does, and trying to find out what the weight of it says. Um, And then, yes, whenever scientists do do that and say, here's the weight of the evidence, the conspiracy theorist then reinterprets it (laughs) as being part of the conspiracy. Uh, So they don't don't follow weight of evidence. So, So in that way, they are fundamentally opposed. And so I guess that's one of the issues I have a little bit with the way he's setting up this study. Um, I'm not sure how much of the conspiracy theory is a kind of worldview or a cognitive style as it is really a personality trait. And, you know, he does acknowledge that people that sort of agree with these conspiracy theories tend to score high on some some of the personality measures that indicate a propensity towards, you know, schizotypy or paranoid thinking. Um, so. You know, the the fact that they wouldn't want the government to force them to inject something into their bodies seems to me kind of logical. If you're a little bit paranoid, why would you want to get vaccinated um, rather than simply denying science in general? I, so I, I guess that's sort of the, the question I still have. I, I don't really understand the sample that he's drawing from and what the characteristics are. And um, I, I did try to go to usamp.com, uh, which is where they say you can find more information about the sample from which they drew their responses. Um, But I didn't find any demographic information or education information or some of the other kind of relevant relevant kind of survey or or sample descriptors that I I would want to see in order to understand more about what these people are. And then when I looked at the distribution of people who sort of said, you know, had said yes to these conspiracy theory questions, it's a pretty skewed distribution. So most people say no, they score very low. And then you have about 180 or so who score greater than, you know, um, the medium median there, which is, I think, three out of five out of a thousand. So I guess that's my question is, is who are these conspiracy theory theorists and, um, you know, what are they like? Well, you just need to stay up really late at night and listen to certain radio stations. And I think you'll be able to find out <laughs> everything you need to know about them. Um, there's another upshot, but I, I see you've taken apart the research. Maybe the research is a part of the conspiracy. Uh, <laughs> but but let me let me say the other upshot of this, which I find really interesting and provocative. I've been debating uh, people on the right about this forever. You know, who's worse? When it comes to denying science, the left or the right, and I've always taken the position the right, I think the evidence supports that. Um, this study says that on vaccines and on genetically modified foods, neither of those is a left-wing issue. Uh, in other words, they're both spread across the political distribution. So if that's the case, then two of the leading examples of the left being against science go away because those are just sort of people left, right, and center. Yeah, no, you're right. And, you know, I like the fact that he also in the paper makes the point that they could be, you know, conservatives and liberals might be rejecting vaccines for very different reasons, right? That, you know, people who score higher maybe on conservatism are sort of less trustful of government forcing them to do something they don't want to do, whereas the people on the left are sort of less trustful of the science that has shown that there really is no link between autism and vaccines. So, you know, that you might really be be opposed to vaccines um, for different reasons, according to your political leanings, which I think is interesting and worth exploring um, further. Well, I think that this this study, we're, we are starting to learn a lot about what causes science denial. 
we're still not very far along in knowing how to stop it. (laughs) It's true. But I also want to point out, too, that, you know, this might be a one way relationship in the sense that, you know, people who are conspiracy theorists might reject vaccines. But that doesn't mean that just because you reject vaccines, you are somehow leaning towards being a conspiracy theorist. You know, these might not be overlapping populations. You might have an outlier set of people of conspiracy theorists who reject any kind of governmental intervention. But, you know, people who in general do believe in the scientific method and do follow science, but for some reason um, have really been swayed by this erroneous myth that the vaccines cause autism. And I, so for me, I I really feel like we need to kind of, we need to address those people because maybe in some ways the conspiracy theorists are lost to us, you know, if they're a, if they're a fringe group of society, if they have these other um, personality behaviors. But it's the people that I'm really interested in swaying that just are misinformed about vaccines. And, you know, how do we address that? Mm. Well, no, I, I agree. And and uh, Professor Lewandowski would agree. He says there's like no point in arguing with conspiracy theorists. But but the problem with the um, and maybe we'll just end on this and we can move on to other topics. But the problem with trying to persuade um people who deny vaccines is that actually, you know, they actually research it a lot and they come to their views very strongly. So I wrote an article about this and one of the comments was, I've got multiple advanced degrees and I don't vaccinate, you know, as if this person was (laughs) trying to say, well, I know what I'm talking about. And they think they know what they're talking about. Yeah, well, I'll I'll leave that to you for the moment. In the <laughs> in the meantime, I've got my own conspiracy theory to okay. address. <laughs> yes, let's hear it. Let's hear it. Um, this one's big. And that yeah. is that yeah, we're all we're all Martians. We come from <laughs> Mars. Um, it is, yeah, so it was, it was a, in, at a conference, uh, a geology conference in Florence at the end of August. A scientist by the name of Stephen Benner put forth the idea that, in fact, it's possible that the conditions in which the sort of origins of life began um, were more conducive on Mars than on the Earth. So the evidence he gives for this is the fact that, you know, we, we know how organic compounds maybe came about. Um, we know that that the elements themselves are all sort of were formed after the Big Bang and, and we're all sort of stardust, as Neil deGrasse Tyson likes to say. But we don't really understand how those elements, you know, sort of becoming the molecules of life and and sort of be- began this replicative process that really is at the core of, of life. So um, really, what is the precursor of DNA? And so people have been looking at different, you know, different types of DNA and and, and in particular, uh, RNA, ribonucleic acid, which is, you know, involved in gene expression and and translating DNA into proteins. Um, But maybe in in a simpler form, it could be a precursor to um, these these organic molecules becoming living organisms. So the idea, but, but in order for RNA to develop, it sort of needs a couple of conditions um, and there's sort of two candidate compounds um, that are found in minerals, uh, borate and molybdate. I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but that sounds about right. Um, that that are found on Mars that seem to be able to sort of catalyze or help along the reactions that would have created RNA. And so he claims that possibly these precursors of DNA were first formed on Mars where the conditions were right. And then somehow, you know, as meteors or, 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 or some other way sort of traveled down to Earth um, and, and led to life being, you know, starting here. So that seems really far-fetched to me. <laughs> or life was seeded here by greater beings. You seem <laughs> well. Prometheus, right? So this is the thing about this is that this is actually scientifically serious. This is not nuts. It's not established to be true. It's someone throwing out a hypothesis with some evidence in its favor, not accepted at this point, but taken seriously, right? Absolutely. And I think that that's, you know, one of the hardest things about studying the origins of life, of course, is, is that we're, we're talking about something that happened, you know, 3.8 billion years ago. So it's pretty hard to get direct evidence from what happened in the, under those conditions. Um, when people study the Big Bang, they do things like build particle accelerators so they can mimic some of the conditions that that would have been around at the time. Um, but, you know, and so I think that's what people are doing now. They're trying to find, well, well what would what would have been the conditions on Earth? And the things that make um, Earth not a great candidate for where these these first precursors happened was the fact that at the time there wasn't a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere. And we were, uh, you know, everything was underwater, apparently. So, you know, I've always, I become fascinated by how people actually do this research and try to um, 
pull together what happened so many billions of years ago. Um, but this this hypothesis was particularly <laughs> intriguing to me. Um, but also one thing I really liked was that in an interview with Carl Zimmer, Stephen Benner actually said that he was hoping that he would be the one to prove himself wrong. So I suppose in, in some ways you could say, well, that's not a conspiracy theorist. Right. No, not, he's not it's the opposite. He's not just <laughs> exactly. He's not just looking for confirming evidence. He's trying to find a better explanation that's maybe not quite so far fetched. Um, and, you know, to me, it's yes, I see it's plausible that um, that the conditions on Mars were better, more conducive uh, to these processes. But, you know, it's a pretty big leap to then say that somehow bits of matter from Mars came down to Earth and, you know, found the conditions to be just right at that time. That's that's to me still the real missing link logically here is, OK, so even if if they did come down to Earth and if the Earth wasn't wasn't hospitable in that way, well, I guess, you know, they would go into the water and. I don't know. It's yeah, <laughs> all I, seems well, speculative. That's but... the thing, you know. It's uh, it's sort of like the modern version of Darwin doing his experiments, where he's trying to find out, uh, you know, if species could travel to other islands and survive and sort of populate islands. And so he's seeing things like, you know, if seeds are, you know, drowned in water for a long time, will they still germinate? <laughs> things like that. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of it's uh, in some ways it's the same scientific problem. You mentioned that. Carl Zimmer, uh, you know, great journalist of the New York Times, uh, covered this, and that's one of the reasons that I decided it was credible is because I trust him to actually weigh the evidence. So it so it sounds like it's serious. It sounds like the evidence is not in. And I guess I, the real question is, do you think I, you seem that you follow this more than me? Do you think we can ever know? I mean, do you think that they're going to? It seems like they're making progress, at least at ruling things out or or ruling things in. Yeah, I mean, I think just like the fossil record or any other sort of way in which we study things that happened long ago, evolution, the Big Bang, you know, the more converging evidence we can get, the more convinced we can be that the theory accounts for all of the available evidence. And so, you know, I think probably the next step now for me as a, you know, just as a thinker, this is not my area by any means, would be to see, well, okay, so what if there was a meteorite or there was a bit of Mars that, you know, fell into the ocean um, could it then develop into a you know a, 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 a living cell somehow and maybe this is where you know we can see people like Sylvia Earle will not only be pioneers and, and frontiers people in terms of um, exploring the ocean but maybe even exploring the very origins of life well yeah and you have to be I mean, it's a fraud area, though. I mean, I think you remember that probably a year or two ago uh, NASA had this big announcement about about how it had found uh, an organism that apparently was able to survive with different DNA structure um, with phosphorus yeah. in the DNA. And then it turned out that, well, since then, lots of papers came out saying, uh, no, you know, <laughs> that's not right. So, yeah. So, no, the the jury's definitely still out, but uh, I thought it was intriguing. And um, in in the in the framework of the pioneering, um, you know, worldview that we're entering in this particular podcast. Mm -hmm. and, and with that, let's take a quick break right now. And we will be back with my conversation with Sylvia Earle. We are thrilled to be with Sylvia Earle, a woman who was named by Time magazine as its first, quote, hero of the planet. She is many things. She's an oceanographer. She is the National Geographic Society Explorer in Residence, formerly was the chief scientist at NOAA. And she's a TED Prize winner who used that award to form Mission Blue, an ocean conservation initiative. And finally, she's sometimes called Her Deepness because uh, she has logged 7,000 hours below the ocean's surface. We did the math for you. So that is 291 days, just shy of a year living in the blue. That is amazing. Uh, Sylvia Earle, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. I just added a few more hours to time underwater because I've just returned from the Gulf of Mexico, a hundred miles offshore to a place called the Flower Garden Banks, where at this time of the year, several key species of corals hoop it up and do what it takes to make more corals. It was just amazing blizzard of life. So I was there with some students from Texas A&M at Corpus Christi, the Heart Research Institute, and we were diving, you know, three dives a day and then another dive at night to observe the action on these these reefs that are sitting on the top of 
deep salt domes that come to within 60 feet of the surface, a hundred miles offshore from the coast of Texas and Louisiana. Anyway. Wow. That puts you closer to a year, a total year underwater. That must give you a completely different perspective on the world. I don't even know where to begin, Um, but most people can't even imagine that. Well, it's getting easier to not only imagine, but to actually go yourself. Since I began diving in the 1950s, there are now millions of people who have at least taken the plunge as far as scuba can take you. And around the world, dozens of little submersibles, passenger subs, and in some cases, little submarines that people can drive themselves or have a pilot. So that it isn't just for the navies of the world and not just for the scientists, but for people generally, increasingly, there's access to the sea and increasingly below the sunlit surface of the ocean and into the great depths below where most of the action really is, where most of life on Earth actually is. Well, I want to... I wanna ask you a lot about ocean exploration, but maybe we can uh, just back up a little bit and, and tell a little bit of your story so that our, you know, our, our listeners know a little bit more about you. So I was, I was looking at your bio. It says you led a team of female aquanauts in the year 1970 uh, under, underwater. Uh, and just, I was just doing some comparative research and I found out that the year 1969 was the year my alma mater, Yale University, actually admitted women as undergraduates. So one year after that, you were taking them to the bottom of the ocean. You were uh, a little ahead of your time, amazingly so. Oh, I don't think so. I think all of us are a little behind the curve for taking advantage of half the world's population. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) But 1969 is also when the first footprints were put on the moon. And when we were living underwater in 1970, there were still astronauts up there in the sky walking around on the moon while we were exploring the ocean. It was a very exciting convergence of technology, of exploration, of looking at ourselves with new eyes. And we haven't stopped that trend since. It's getting better all the time. Seeing ourselves as a part of the living world and the only place in the universe where huh, where life is possible as we know it. We focus a lot of our coverage at uh, Climate Desk on climate change, and so uh, that is sort of the big threat. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has its major report coming out uh, in late September, but it's been leaked already. And in the leaked report, it says... Uh, and these are the words, because I have, I have it and we've reported on it. It says it's virtually certain that the ocean will continue to acidify. Uh, they call that virtually certain, which is one of their highest certainty rankings. What does that mean? It means that we have set in motion trends that are not going to be easy to reverse. Among the best actions we can take, of course, are to minimize new additions of carbon dioxide that turns to carbonic acid in the ocean once the ocean has taken up as much CO2 as it can in the normal processes of photosynthesis and other means of absorbing the CO2. But the carbonic acid trend, the increased acidification, is, is uh, steady. And we just as there's a long residual time in the atmosphere above, putting reversing the trend now that it's underway is... Something we haven't figured out how to do yet. Maybe we can't reverse the trend, but what we can do is protect the systems that are working in the ocean. We have been under the illusion for most of our history, thinking that the ocean is too big to fail, that the ocean is so big, so vast, so resilient, that nothing humans could do could alter its nature. Other circumstances beyond human influence that historically have changed the ocean dramatically. We know, looking back in time through the eyes of geologists, but those processes are on a time scale that allow for some adjustments along the way, with some exceptions. Comets striking the earth that 
have a profound impact in a very short time period. Well, we're like those comets, I suppose you could say, that in a short period of time are changing things dramatically. But the difference is that we have, we have the power, now that we know what's going on, we do have the power to look around and say, okay, what holds the planet steady? The forests, the, the ocean, the, the systems that got us to where we are, generating oxygen, taking up carbon, shaping the chemistry of the planet. If we know to a better extent, and we do now better than certainly when I was a kid, how the world works, we're better equipped to make smart investments in terms of what we protect and what we don't disrupt. I look at the polar areas, for example. The last thing we would do if we're really focused on the future of humankind is do anything beyond what we've already done to disrupt the processes in polar areas. Even icebreakers, as important as they are for gaining information, they turn big chunks of ice into little chunks of ice and expose dark water, both things accelerating the loss of ice through warming when dark water is exposed through chopping up big chunks into little chunks. The ice melts faster, of course. Um, taking the wildlife, the fish, and the other creatures in the Antarctica, extracting the krill, you're disrupting the chemistry of that fine-tuned system. We do it for short-term profit, but in the end, we're disrupting and altering the nature of these systems that are really important to us for reasons other than pounds of meat or the oil derived from krill, for example. But there are things that we couldn't think about in the same way going back when these attitudes of taking from the ocean were first established a few decades ago. But now we know, and that's cause for hope. Do you think that, you know, non, I mean, non, scientists know, and I know that even 50 years ago, maybe scientists didn't believe that we could uh, change the ocean or change the atmosphere. Do what, what do you tell non-scientists to make them go, aha, we really did have this impact, you know, I can see it. What, what really stuns them and, you know, makes them pause about, about something that we've done? Scientists are getting to be better communicators, maybe driven by a sense of urgency, whatever. But what scientists know is what humankind should know. I mean, scientists, all scientists, observe carefully and report honestly what they observe. Well, Anybody can do this. A kid can do that. They can apply the basic approach of a scientist. Observe carefully and report honestly what you see. And if you find out that your initial observations were not complete or didn't have it in the right context, then you change your evaluation. But it's that same thing. Observe carefully. Report honestly. Keep an open mind all the time. And scientists now, as never before, have information available to them. People, not just scientists, have information available to them as never before. The trick is to be able to evaluate the quality of the information that you, you observe yourself or that comes to you through the many sources that are out there. Who do you trust? What sources are giving you the straight answers? that not just observing carefully, but reporting honestly what they observe. There's a lot of dishonesty out there, disinformation that clouds the picture. People, whether they're wishful thinking or have short-term interests or economic interests that they don't want to jeopardize, cloud the pictures. But the data are there. The, the information is all around us. Just in the lifetime of people who, even 10-year-olds, but people such as I, who've been around more than a few decades, are witnesses to change. I didn't read much of what I feel that I now know in books. I've experienced the change personally. I've seen the skies once darkened with birds, now empty because the birds are gone. I've been to coral reefs where there was coral. Coral, gone. The fish, once abundant, now diminished 
markedly, and it's happened in my lifetime, but I am witness. So observing carefully, I'm doing my personal best to report honestly what I see, what I know, and to lead people to do the same. So how do you reach people? Every way you can. Sometimes it's with a, with a deftly written cartoon. Sometimes it's with an avatar film where with a symbol, you tell a story, and in the process, you get people to see themselves differently. Or you can look at the journals. The National Geographic has great public trust, well-earned. The magazine has been reporting since 1888 the nature of the world and all that is in it, they say. You know, it's social actions, the natural world, the physical world, whatever it is, to be a window on who we are, where do we come from? And now, most importantly, all of us need to be thinking, as never before, where are we going? Because as never before have we been at this crossroads of knowing that we are at, we have exceeded maybe in some cases, or we are approaching tipping points. And ocean acidification falls into that category. That we reached a point of no return, that we're going to see increased acidification no matter what we do. Well, even there, there are things that we can do that can keep acidification of the ocean from going this far versus this far. You know, I heard a statistic recently that I don't know if this is what if this works, but it certainly took me aback. Uh, about how much we can change the ocean or change the planet. So, and this is from a scientific paper recently. Uh, from 1955 to 2010, if all the heat stored in the ocean from warming of the planet, if that were to somehow go to the atmosphere, which can never happen, <laughs> thankfully, but if it would, that would be 65 degrees Fahrenheit is what they published in, in a recent paper. I think it was Geophysical Research Letters. So we've stored that much heat in the ocean. Uh, you wouldn't, uh, much of life on Earth would die if you took that much heat and put it in the atmosphere. I was shocked by that. Well, the ocean, we now know, is a great planetary thermoregulator. It holds heat. It stores energy, if you will, in that heat-cold exchange, driving currents. I mean, currents are driven by temperature differentials, by salinity differentials, by the movement of the earth itself, and that in turn affects the currents of air above. And it's that air-sea exchange. We weren't as aware as we, back in time, not so many years ago, as we now are, that that ocean of air, that atmosphere of ocean, <laughs> if we think of it as an interconnected system, with the land, of course, is all land, islands within the ocean, and that the ocean really drives the way the world works. We hadn't been as acutely conscious of that until right about now. We're right about at this point beginning to understand how the ocean dominates the way the world works, makes our lives possible. Take away the ocean, you've got a planet a lot like Mars. Not a very hospitable place for the likes of us or life in general. There may be life on Mars associated with the water that's there, but there's a lot of water on Earth and it's liquid water. And we know that on this planet where water exists, there's life deep within the rocks in the Earth. They're microbes. We didn't know that until fairly recently. You've said that, let's talk about ocean exploration, because of course you've been a, a pioneer here in terms of the companies that you founded creating uh, submersibles, but 95% uh, of the ocean, uh, I heard from one of your talks, has never been seen. Do you see a day in the future where we really have explored most of that, or does it at some point become not cost-effective to do some of the most deep parts? I can just imagine it would, it would get to be extremely uh, difficult to do. Well, it's challenging, but what's your life worth? Huh. I mean, we, we invest enormous sums to go high in the sky. And yes, part of it is for strategic purposes, thinking about security and the way that countries think in terms of 
of their place in the world. And we certainly have had a dominant role in terms of going skyward. And we historically have also been a leader in terms of access to the sea for strategic military purposes. It's where our biggest investment has gone in the past. And for also for exploitation, whether it's for fish, oil, gas, minerals, whatever. Uh, billions invested in extracting from the ocean. Well, now we understand that the most important thing that we extract from the ocean is life itself, our lives, not the fish that we take out or the shrimp or the lobsters or crabs or whatever. Our lives are dependent on maintaining an ocean that works in our favor. And by disrupting those processes, whether it's putting CO2 in from the top or taking large quantities of life out of the ocean or disrupting the seafloor through or adding noise to the ocean, we never thought that was an issue. Never. And go, go back 50 years, people were oblivious to the impact of the noise that we have added to the ocean. And this isn't just the spotlight that is now being put on the Navy and what they're doing with their experiments to and, and the technologies to intercept and understand enemy submarines or otherwise understand the ocean and what is out there, down there. But oil and gas exploration with their seismic surveys, geologists with their seismic surveys, with the shipping, enormous impact on the ocean with the thunderous sounds that the big ships that now ply the oceans of the world that weren't there during the age of sail. It's only in the last century, mostly the last half century, that ships have gotten much more numerous and much larger, much noisier. Even little boats like outboard motors are tremendously noisy. I've been underwater with an outboard motor flying overhead. I mean, you just you can't hear anything uh, when they go crashing over the surface. Noise, we never thought noise mattered. Now we know that a major form of communication in the ocean is accomplished acoustically. And it isn't just whales and other marine mammals. Diving birds, crustaceans, and certainly fish. The fish, when you catch them, tend not to make a lot of sound, but there, I mean, there's some exceptions. Uh, croakers croak, grunts grunt. Um, if you take a big grouper out of the ocean, it's likely to make some thunderous sounds. But underwater, that's how they communicate with, with pulses of sound. And when we interfere, it's like the birds have a hard time communicating because of all the sound noise that we have imposed in their, in their world, all in the latter part, mostly in the latter part of the 20th century. One of the problems here, I guess, is that, I mean, you know, your, me your message will be heard in a certain way because... Because I do hear here the idea of, of we have to limit things that we do. We have to, you know, lessen our impact. And uh, I think, as you know, political psychology tells us that there's a group of people uh, for whom that is, like, directly contrary to their values and how they see themselves. And, uh, in fact, it's, it, it's actually going to provoke a negative reaction. I'm talking about someone who's, who's a libertarian, um, you know, who really thinks that if there's a solution to problems, the problems are, you know, doing something technological, not, not holding yourself back. I mean, what do you, what do you say when, when you want your message to get through to somebody just with a very different set of values? I think the answer to the major issues that we face, that being one of the major issues, is, is knowing. It's when people see themselves in context. It's a revelation. It's like the parting of the dark curtains. It's happened to humankind, largely, since the middle of the 20th century, since that view of Earth from space, that this is it. There is no away. There is no other place. We have to make peace with the natural systems on this planet that make our lives possible. When we didn't know that there were limits to how many trees we could cut and still keep a planet that works, or how many fish we could catch and still have a planet that functions in our favor, that we 
could, without any thought to how the world works, burn fossil fuels. But the key is now, as we start the 21st century, evidence is here. The evidence is all around us. If you're just at least willing to not pass judgment, just look at the facts. Just make your own conclusions. You may say, oh, I can see that this is leading to a place that I personally would like to be there 50 years or 100 years or 1,000 years in the future, but I'm not going to be there. I'm just worried about how I'm going to make it during the next six months or the next quarter or maybe the next year or maybe the next 10 years or maybe the end of my life, whether it's 20 years or 30 years, whatever it is. The rest of the world can go hang as far as I'm concerned. It's about me. When I'm gone, I don't care what happens to the future. Uh, there are people, quite a lot, whether they articulate it as such, they aren't looking at their impact on the world, with their children and all the children of the future. Tomorrow's child, as industrialist Ray Anderson put it, they don't care about that. They just don't worry about it. It's all about me. It's all about now. How much can I get? How fast before I die? And then who cares? So for them, I hope they're in the minority. But even those hardened individuals can sometimes change once they see something they hadn't thought about before or care about something they hadn't cared about before, whether it's having a child of their own, whether it's seeing a bit of poetry or a film or a National Geographic special or whatever it is, that you have the capacity to change the way you think. That's why humans have succeeded as we have so far. We observe, we integrate what we see, and then we take actions, whatever it is, or inactions. Now, I love the book by Ed Wilson, recently published, called The Social Conquest of Earth, really looking about how humans have become so successful over time. The fact that we are social creatures, that from one generation to the next, through not just the last 10,000 years, but going back for millennia before that, we learn, we learn, we learn. We learn fire, we learn writing, we learn math, we learn engineering, we learn how to solve problems, and then we pass it along, we pass it along. And here we are at the brink of a time when as never before, we need every scrap of knowledge translated to wisdom to think about not just where am I, Sylvia Earle, going to be in 10 years, but where are my children going to be in the next 50 years? Where are my grandchildren going to be as the century comes to a close? It's about what are we doing for human society, for humankind? Do we want to be remembered as that generation, those people who knew, who could see and anticipate the future and then failed to take action? It was a secure and enduring place for us within this magical blue planet that keeps us alive? Or would we be looked upon as those selfish individuals who just took everything they could while they could, and that was it? You know, either because they were ignorant, didn't know, or because worse, they didn't care. But I'm grateful to my predecessors, our predecessors. We couldn't be where we are. I couldn't be wearing this jacket that I couldn't begin to make on my own. I couldn't even imagine how to make the button on this jacket or the thread that's putting it there. I benefit from those in the past who have figured this out and passed that knowledge along. Those who began early in the 20th century to see that we were destabilizing the land and the water, that every living creature needs water, and protection, protective measures, protective policies began to be put in place because it was obvious we could learn from the past, see that we have the capacity to eliminate not just individual species of our fellow citizens on this little blue speck in the universe, eliminate them. We have that power to kill and destroy. But whole systems 
they're now gone because it didn't seem like it mattered. I think that the E.O. Wilson way of framing it, you know, we're the first generation to know and we're the generation that needs to know the most. So we have have to act as a powerful um, way of doing it. So I'll just ask you one last question. I mean, when you and you've also talked about the ocean as being sort of a life support system for us on Earth. So, you know, when you look forward, what is it what does it look like to you? And we'll just wrap up with this. What does it look like to you? Uh, you know, 10 or 20 or 50 years out, do you see people actually continuing to take up enough knowledge? Are you optimistic or, you know, what is your outlook? I am a cautious optimist. Actually, I'm an enthusiastic optimist, but with a dose of realism, of course, because there are people who do just care about the here and now, just about themselves, and some who aren't up to speed with what the world generally has acquired in terms of knowledge. But like Ed Wilson, like many others um, who are looking at this overview, it's pretty clear that this century is going to be a tumultuous time when we come to grips with the reality of what's happening to the natural systems that make our lives possible. But if we can keep our wits about us and take actions while there's still time to draw down our impact on the skies above, the waters of the world, the fabric of life upon which our lives depend. The next century could actually be a time when we use this amazing asset, the planet, in our favor. I'm not talking about geoengineering. I'm talking about individuals who learn to live at peace within the systems that keep us alive. It's about respect for nature. It's about not just casually destroying things that we can't put back together again. It's about thinking, not just in terms of this day, this minute, this this next six months or six years. It's really taking the long view. All of us have the chance to be part of this turning point in time when we can be for all future generations, the heroic generation, the visionary generation that for the first time could see back into the past, evaluate the present, and anticipate what needs to be done so that humankind, however many there are of us, whether it turns out to be a steady state of 5 billion or maybe even 10, or maybe we have fewer, but whatever it is that we learn to live within our means, and to enjoy it as a challenge, not as a hardship, but the joy of using our creative minds to harness the power of the sun for our energy. Huh, we already are. just happens to be ancient energy from the sun. So I tell kids, this is the sweet spot in time, because never before could we know what we know. Never again will we have a chance, as good as we have right now, to get it together. And, and really make a difference for the future. You know, that's kind of the motto of this show. So <laughs> what you just articulated, um, knowledge can make a difference if we have it, if we use it. And so I think that that is an incredibly powerful note to end on. Uh, so Dr. Earl, thank you so much for giving us your time and being with us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me on board. So, Andrea, I just wanted to clarify, when we recorded Sylvia Earle, it was a little while back now, so a couple of things said by me, not by her. Uh, Some of the things said by me are dated. Everything she said seems to be not dated. Um, I actually asked her a question about ocean acidification. I referred to language from a leaked draft of a report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So that the final report's now out. They actually don't use the language about virtually certain anymore. I don't know why. Now they still say the oceans have acidified and this will continue in the future. So the punchline doesn't change. But I just wanted to clarify that. I don't think Dr. Earle's answer would have changed at all but we want to include that caveat. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and one of my favorite quotes from, from this inter- interview is when she says, you know, the ocean, people think, is too big to fail. And I just think that's, that's exactly right. So many of us, you know, think that the ocean is just this massive thing. And, you know, it is. Our, our world is mainly water, and yet it's, it's just as fragile as any other ecosystem. Yeah, I, I, I love this interview. I'm 
you know, listening to it again and again because there's something so powerful about how she evokes E.O. Wilson and and says, we're the first to have the knowledge. It's like we're on the razor's edge. We're the first to have the knowledge sufficient that we might actually do something. And so it puts us in the hot seat like never before, but it's an opportunity. You can still fix things. You can still change things. People before couldn't and people afterwards maybe can't. Yeah. And and in some ways, just like in terms of um, private enterprise going out into space, you know, there is now a trend for private enterprise going down into the sea with James Cameron and, you know, other groups kind of going and exploring this this frontier that's on our own planet. So, you know, hopefully we'll see a resurgence of interest in the oceans as, you know, of course, they're going to affect us. But, you know, now is really the time to sort of focus back on understanding um, this part of our world. And I think that she answered my question so well. And this is this is a scientist who communicates well. I'm I'm I asked the the typical annoying journalist question. Oh, but you know, like why we're not going to ever explore all the oceans? It's going to cost too much money. You know, who's what are we going to get out of it? Classic thing uh, that we journalists like to say. And she she reframes it around and she explains how basically our lives depend on the oceans. And she totally uh, basically defeated me. So that was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, you got a little filibuster there. <laughs> yeah, I know, but it was a it was a great it was a delightful filibuster, unlike other filibusters that we've seen recently. Uh, so, <laughs> so that's it for another episode, and thank you once again for joining us uh, and listening to Inquiring Minds. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic partnership that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, and Wired. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Chris Mooney. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs> 